Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Alignment of the Appetites by Pastor Sean Wood. We, uh, we're going to continue our walk through the book of Ecclesiastes and uh, uh, this sermon series is Climbing the Mountain of Meaning and we know that everybody's looking for meaning and purpose uh, in life and nobody really finds it until they find Christ. And uh, we've, when we looked at the first couple of chapters and also chapters three to five, we, we began to realise that one of the important words in Ecclesiastes is the word hevel. It's a Hebrew word that your Bible will translate as being emptiness or, or meaningless or vanities, says the preacher. Vanities or vanities. And you, that's how it is translated in our Bibles, but it doesn't grasp the full context of what the preacher is trying to tell us. Because the word hevel means a vapour or smoke. And what he wants us to know is, although life can be fleeting, yes. He wants us to know that also the things of this world and the things of this life are just like a vapour and just like a smoke. They appear solid, but when you try to grab hold of them, truly there's nothing there. And the preacher is one that we should listen to. King Solomon is a man that had all at his disposal. He had, this is a guy that ate his Wheaties out of golden bowls. He, he built pools and gardens. Last time we spoke about Ecclesiastes, we said that, we, we read the verse where he says, I will test you with pleasure. He was a man that had, had, had exhausted all the avenues on this earth and he still says, vanity of vanities. And it's because of this pessimistic outlook that most people and most commentators say, this book shouldn't even be in the Bible. This is the the ramblings of a madman, pessimistic views that you can't base anything on. But actually, when we read the book of Ecclesiastes, it appears as though somebody's just decided, I'm going to address the elephants in the room that everybody else is happy to ignore. Elephants like the fact that time happens to all of us and you can't control it. Doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter what cream you put on your face, doesn't matter what fountain of life you seem to tap into, turns out you're going to age and the wrinkles come. You can't get away from time. They come a bit faster for some of us. I admit that. So we understand that there's no guarantees in this life. In fact, the preacher wants us to understand there's no guarantees. You can't build your life. You won't find any purpose, meaning or full satisfaction in the things of this world. You will only find those guarantees in God. He wants to address the elephant that we all know is there, but we don't want to address this elephant, where good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. You ever notice that? You ever notice that you've got no control over that? So what do we do with all of this? The preacher says you'll find no guarantees till you find God. You have to rest in the one who knows the future. If we could sum the book of Ecclesiastes up in one sentence, it would be, we do, not know the fu- we do not know what the future holds, but we know the one who holds the future. And the preacher wants to take our attention to the one who holds the future. This morning, I want to talk to you about alignment of our appetites. And we're a hungry and we're a thirsty people. We were, we were actually born and designed to hunger and thirst. And, and if you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, maybe I'd like more desire for God. How do I get more desire for God? How do I hunger for him more? How do I thirst for him more? 
Quite often the problem is that our lives are so full and crammed with all the other desires that we pack in there that there's just no room left for God. Why is it that you can go to developing countries and they are just hungry and thirsty for God because they've got the room for God. They've got the room in their hearts for God. So if you want to desire God more, maybe we need to remove some of the junk that we feed on in our lives. The Buddhists will tell you that life's pursuit is a pursuit of suppressing desire and appetite. Some of them are pretty good at it. They don't talk for 20 years. I don't know how. How do they do that, Terry? How do you not talk for 20 years? Brother, that's insanity. It's (laughs) It's not religion, that's insanity. But they will do whatever they can to suppress desire. And there was a prominent member of Buddhism that was speaking to Ravi Zacharias and said, our life's pursuit is to suppress desire and appetite in our lives. And Ravi Zacharias says, well, that's interesting. Is it not true that the Dalai Lama desires Tibet to be freed from Chinese rule? Well, we don't speak about those matters. You can't suppress it. You were born and created to have an appetite. Problem is, we need to put it in the right place. You see, Jesus never came to suppress desire. Jesus never came to remove your appetites, brother. You eat all the pizza you like. Vegetarian pizza. He never came to remove desire and appetite. He said, no, you've got it all in the wrong place. And we hear verses like, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbour as yourself. In other words, you've got all your desires and all your appetites in the wrong place. So I want to have a look at aligning the appetites. If you can flick to the next one, please. Reuben, C.S. Lewis says that there is but one good, and that is God. Everything else is good when it looks to him, and it's bad when it turns from him. And that's what the preacher would like us to know. You can enjoy life, you can enjoy everything that is given to you as a gift from God, but when you're outside of God and you're not in God, these things control you. Next slide, please, Reuben. When it comes to the things of this world... We need to read the fine print when it comes to pleasure, when it comes to desires and and all the things of this world. We so often forget to read the fine print. And if we did, we would find that it reads satisfaction sold separately. Pursue the desires of this world as you will, but understand this one thing, you will not find satisfaction outside of Jesus Christ. You will keep longing. You will keep looking. There are two diseases, one we know commonly and one we try to forget in uh, modern society, particularly in the Western world. The first one is influenza, where we get the flu. We all get the flu. But it turns out that too many of us have another variation, which is a spiritual variation, and it's called affluenza. And that's a disease that absolutely desires to control all of us, where we have to be affluent. We have to seek honour, prestige. And it overtakes our lives and distracts us from the reason that we are here. Last time I spoke in Ecclesiastes, I shared that Blaise Pascal, I've got another quote from Blaise Pascal today, but I shared that Blaise Pascal says that we are all born with a God-shaped hole in our hearts. And we try to cram everything else in there, friends. We try to cram even even self-religion. Even a self-righteous religion that says, "I I can be saved by what I do. We try to cram everything else into that hole. 
And the preacher and Jesus would say, nothing else fits in that hole. That's why Jesus can stand before the masses in John chapter 6 and say, I'm the bread of life. If you're hungry, come to me. That's why he can say, after he, just after he has fed 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves of bread, that's why he can say, I'm always going to be enough for you. You will always pick up 12 basketfuls when you're done. You will never be able to have enough of Jesus. You will never fill your basket and say, I am done, what is next? Because there is always basketfuls to pick up. Amen. He is always enough for us. Next quote, please, Reuben. A.W. Tozer, a good... Becoming a good friend of mine, I, I really respect, if, if there's a book that's got A.W. Tozer's name on it, read it. Please do yourself a favour. No man should desire to be happy who is not at the same time holy. He should spend his efforts in seeking to know and do the will of God, leaving to Christ the matter of how happy he should be. I love the last part of that. Leaving to Christ the matter of how happy he should be. Next slide, please, Reuben. I want to share with you a parable that um, I was reading one time and it changed my life. It's the parable of the rich fool found in Luke chapter 12, verse 13. You can turn there if you want to or you can look at it later. And somebody comes to Jesus with a question and it is this question that will inspire a very short parable. The question is, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Here we are sitting before the Son of Almighty God and I'm worried about my inheritance. Here I am sitting before the one who is teaching me. He addresses Jesus as, uh, as teacher. And he says, you know what? Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me because that's what's important to me right now is whether or not I'm going to get my inheritance. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Verse 15, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard. Heed those words. Against all covetousness. For one's life, underline this next sentence, please. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And please underline that word required. I'll come back to it in a moment. Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, the, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. That word there required is the easiest way to describe it in the Greek is as if a bank had lent you a sum of money. And that word requiring is somebody coming and demanding back what they had lent you. And what God is saying to this man here is, I want back what I leased you. And I leased you that slice of eternity, which is your life to steward before me. We lease this life from God. He could take it from us whenever it suits him. I don't know if any other parent in here has ever used the line, I brought you into the world and I can take you out. I only use it with my boys. 
I brought you into this world and I can take you back out. They understand what I mean, don't they, Baz? Absolutely. Ever heard the phrase, that person's living on borrowed time? I used that a couple of times when I was at school. I said, that guy's living on borrowed time. Just before they asked me not to come back to that school. (laughs) We're all living on borrowed time. If God gives you 50 years, praise God. If God gives you 150 years, it's a miracle. If God gives you 30 years, praise God. But grab hold of what he has given you, this little slice of eternity, because everything you do now pertains to eternity. The preacher's got some words for us as we move on through the book of Ecclesiastes. He wants to wake us up to this truth. Friends, I would implore you this morning, if you take nothing else out of this morning, I implore you to tear down your barns. Do whatever you have to do to remove whatever it is that is clogging the pipes in your heart, not physically, the doctors can take care of that, but whatever it is that is clogging the pipes in your heart, do whatever you have to do to tear down them barns until you rely on God and God alone. Until you desire him and him alone. Until you say to your soul, I don't care what's in my barns, I just want to worship God. And it changes our focus from worshipping the gifts to worshipping the giver. The blessing and the irony of that is when you worship the giver, it just so happens that he comes with gifts. We'll talk about some of his gifts shortly. Next, please, Reuben. If we keep reading down... Yes. We'll start at verse 10. It says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. And we've just covered that. You will never be satisfied with money. It just turns out that desire is always travelling but never arriving. It's always on the move. It's, it's never satisfied. Verse 13, it says that there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And here's a truth that we probably all need to understand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Each and every one of us were born with all of the possessions that we will leave with. And that is our birthday suit, brothers and sisters. We will leave with our birthday suit. They may just put you in a little bit of a better suit when you leave but the fact of the matter is you brought nothing into the world and you can take nothing out with you when we leave this world we will not have anything in our hands we can't take anything in our hands we can only take what is in our heart so sister Deb spend up the inheritance don't absolutely (laughs) very good next one please Reuben coming towards the end of chapter 5 I pick it up in verse 18 the the preacher now says behold what I have what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with, with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him God has given him the days of his life For this is his lot. Verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. This is the gift of God. It is God's gift to enjoy what it is that he puts in your hands. 
but you can only fully appreciate his gifts when you fully appreciate the giver. And inside of all of that, just come to God and stop looking at what's in his hands and just lay at his feet. I don't care what it's in your hands, I just want to spend time with you. The gift of God, enjoying life, is to find all of our joy in God and to love him. Next one, please, Reuben. Come with me to chapter 6. It says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lays, it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God does give wealth, possessions, and honour, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them, and this is vanity, and it's a grievous evil. He calls this a grievous evil. Now, the, the preacher's going to change gears a little bit now as we get into chapter 6. He's going to, it's going to be in about gear five by the time we get into chapter seven of what he really wants to say here because I believe the preacher wants to align our appetites as well. But there's something about affliction and we'll get to that in a moment and there's something about, uh, there is something about adversity that just begins to awaken a longing for God in a person's life. I've heard testimonies of people that have said If that bad thing hadn't happened to me, I would never have ever turned to God. And they praise God for some of the things that have happened in their lives. But God doesn't give us power sometimes. It is a grievous evil. But God desires for us, for there to be an awakening of a longing and a desire for him. That we would, in all that we enjoy in this life, that we would acknowledge the source. For all the God that gives us, may we always acknowledge the source. Thank you, Reuben. We come down to verse, verse 5. Moreover, it, has been, it, it is not seen under the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Verse 6. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over and yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. And now we're going to pick up the second theme that the preacher wants to bring There are two things uh, throughout the course of Ecclesiastes that uh, really weigh heavily on the preacher. The first one is time. Time is imposed on each and every one of us. And we looked at that last time in in chapter 3. There is a time for everything. There is a a season. There are seasons in God. Ever notice how there's seasons in God? God's very seasonal. But the other thing that's imposed on all of us is death. Might sound morbid, but the more we live life in full view of the fact that we will stand before God, we'll touch more on that next week, the more it changes how we live life now. You could live a thousand years, but the same thing's going to happen. Time, death, and taxes happen to us all. <clears throat> Let's keep reading. Verse 7, chapter 6. Next one, please, Reuben. Verse 7 says that all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. The drive of Western society is that I must have more. For the more that I eat is the more that I must have. It's like we have strong appetites, but people have empty hearts. Strong appetites and empty hearts. Desire is ever travelling but never arriving. Can I have that quote, please, Reuben? Uh, Blaise Pascal says, The desire and force between them are responsible for all of our actions. Desire causes our voluntary acts, force our involuntary. Friends, 
God wants your voluntary acts. Everything that we do, desire, causes our voluntary acts and force our involuntary. And God could absolutely overrule all of our free will, but he chooses not to. Instead, he tugs at the strings of our hearts. If you come with me to the end of chapter 6, verse 12, it says, next slide please, Reuben, it says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? What the preacher is saying, again, we've heard this saying already, but what the preacher is saying is there are no guarantees. You do not know what tomorrow holds. We make plans. Most of us think that we'll wake up in the morning and have our Wheaties and our cup of coffee. Not tea, you don't drink tea until night time. <laughs> the Tassie's not seasonal, brother. It's the only place where it's not seasonal. It's cold all the time. But we don't know what comes tomorrow. And that's what the preacher wants us to know. You know what? You've got no guarantees. You can make all the plans you like. You can save all the money in the bank that you like, and we should, because the preacher exhorts us. This is the same guy that wrote Proverbs. The preacher exhorts us to live wisely. It's, it's wise to live healthily. It's wise to steward your money well. It's, to, it's wise to steward your time well. The psalmist says, help me to number my days. In other words, help me to keep a focus on the fact that I'm here for a limited time. Help me to number my days. But there are no guarantees, for man does not know what comes after him. God knows. Now we come to, next slide please Reuben. Now we come to uh, chapter 7. And the first six verses uh, mostly are wise proverbs that, <clears throat> that awaken us to some realities. They're better than proverbs. A proverb that says it's better to go to a funeral than to go to a party, my paraphrase. And how could that possibly be? How could it possibly be better to go to a funeral than a party? What are you saying? The preacher says, well, basically, my paraphrase, the preacher is saying when you go to a funeral, you're likely to take stock. You're likely to contemplate. You're likely to reflect. But at a party, you're distracted. You're thinking about anything and everything else. The enemy has got the people, particularly in Western society in Australia and America and places like that, the enemy is very good at keeping us distracted. Do you know, if you can stop people outside these doors for five to ten minutes, if, if I can have five to ten minutes with one person and sit them down and just get them to stop and just to ask a few questions like, how did we get here? How is it that there is regularity in the universe? If you can get them to contemplate for a moment, just stop, remove all the distractions and just contemplate for a moment you can get them to completely think differently. But the enemy is good at keeping us distracted, just keeping on dangling carrots in front of people's faces long enough to keep them looking away from Jesus. I am, I am astounded that people go through their everyday life without a second thought for Jesus. We'll use his name in a vulgar way, we'll, we'll abuse anybody that talks about him, but we never think about him or contemplate that there might be some truth. But if we can just slow people down, and sometimes the greatest schoolmaster for all of us is some adversity and some affliction. 
in, you can look this one up later, in Acts chapter 14, Paul is, is preaching much to the Jews and stuff and they stone him. And stoned in the Bible means something a lot different than what it means today. But Paul was stoned, dragged out of the city as if he was dead and left. And the apostles came out to grab his body and the other disciples came out to grab his body and he awoke and said, let's go back, my paraphrase. And then when he gets back in there, he teaches them many things. And it also says, chapters, uh, you can look it up later, 14, 19 to 23 of the verses. He says that through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God. No, no, he must have got that wrong. No, no, you must have got that wrong, Paul. Surely you meant through much prosperity, we will float on angels' wings into the kingdom of God. That's not what he said, and it's not what he meant. Because he lived a life of a man that I would say inherited the kingdom of God. He was a man that would give a testimony that he was called up to the third heavens and he saw things that he could not put into English words. He said, I can't express it. He's talking in the third person. But he's a man who knew much suffering. He was stoned. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. Prison in Rome. Nobody, you didn't get fed in Roman prisons. If somebody didn't come and feed you, you'd have starved. This was persecution. This was much suffering and tribulation. But through much adversity. We've spoken before about furnaces, but one of them is the furnace of affliction. And we ask ourselves many questions. And next slide, please, Reuben. Yeah, that one, that's the one I want. Thank you. Yeah. And there was a man by the name of Thomas Boston who wrote and composed a sermon around this one verse in, chapter, in verse 13 that says, consider the work of God. And Thomas Boston was a, well, he's, he's a pretty, pretty on-point kind of theologian. In fact, John Calvin said of Thomas Boston that he, his work on the covenant sets him apart as one of our founding fathers. But Thomas Boston was a man that knew adversity, friends. Thomas Boston was a man that really knew what good health looked like but never missed his turn in the pulpit. His wife was often ill for long periods of time. Out of the ten children that they had, four of them survived. But here is a man that wrote wrote a, a sermon entitled The Crook in the Lot. And basically what he's saying is we travel this road of life along straight paths. But the fact of the matter is, you know what? God lays the road that is our lives. And we want the road to be like a four-lane M1 with no other cars on it, brother. A four-lane M1, just a straight road where we just sail in. But it just turns out that every road's got some corners in it. Some people's roads have got more corners than others. Some of them are more frequent, sharper. But the fact of the matter is, those corners are put there by God. Verse 13 says, consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. Who can straighten out what God has made crooked? Verse 14 says that in the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, be grateful, be content. And in the day of adversity, consider that God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So that man may not know what is coming next. God is the one who makes the both. And I know we all want the prosperity, but it is in the furnace of afflictions that gold is purified. God is about purifying our faith. 
And in the furnace of affliction, the impurities rise to the surface. Consider the work of God. The word consider there means more than just reflection, but it's accepting and it's an acceptance, an inward acceptance of the work of God in our lives. Come with me now to the end of chapter 7. Starting at verse 27, it says, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Verse 29 is where we want to land now. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Sometimes we sing a song called Indescribable. And there's a line in that song that says, Though you know the depths of my heart, you love me. Though God knows the depths of our hearts, he loves us. And the preacher says here that God has made man upright, but don't we find many schemes? We seek out many schemes. We, we look for many back doors to escape God's work in our lives. If I can have that quote, please, Reuben. No man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good, says C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, before he became, in fact, C.S. Lewis would coin himself as being the reluctant convert. He would write that due to the overwhelming evidence, I bow my knee to Christ, but I am a reluctant convert that can't ignore the evidence. But he, before that, decides, you know what? I'm going to live a good life. I'm going to live a good moralistic life. And I think he says I get to about day two and realise this is impossible. This is impossible. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard, says C.S. Lewis, to be good. How true that is of all of us. As we come now to chapter 8, and we'll leave it at chapter 8 this morning. I want to come down to verse 10. And it says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. And this also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Verse 12, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well, it will be well with those who fear God. Because they fear before him. It will be well with those who fear God. Everybody here has probably heard the song that we sing, It Is Well With My Soul. And I think most of us would know the story that lies behind that song. The man that penned those words was a man by the name of Horatio Boner. He was a very wealthy man in Chicago. He was a lawyer and he poured all of his money into property investments. And in the Chicago fires, he lost it all. Lost it all. He was a huge fan of D.L. Moody and after some time he says to his wife that he would like to follow D.L. Moody to Britain where he was holding some meetings and he had to tie up some matters. He had continued work as a lawyer and built up a little bit more of his wealth but he sent his wife on ahead of him and as they're going across, of course, the boat we know sinks and he gets a letter from his wife, boat sinks, I alone have survived. Two years later, Horatio Boner makes the trip to be reunited with his wife. And as the boat passes over the place where his children lost their lives, 
He pens the words, it is well with my soul. In the book of Job, we read in Job 2.10, Job says to his wife, is it of us that we should expect good from God and not evil as well? Who are we to demand good from God alone? The preacher throughout chapter 7, and, and now we come to a conclusion in verse eight, uh, chapter 8, but he wants us to realise one thing, the problem that we so often have when we're assessing injustice, whenever it is that we're crying unfair to God, and many of us do, quite often the problem is a distorted view of what we actually deserve. We plead with God as if we are being treated unjustly and sometimes affliction is unjust to us. But we fail to understand if God actually gave us what we really deserved, it would be far less prettier than what we're getting right now. The fact of the matter is God treats us all as though we do not deserve it. That's called grace. It's called grace. What the preacher wants to do is he wants to align our appetites to such a point where we realise, you know what, I don't even deserve what I've got now. Thank you, God, for what I have. Thank you, God, that I walk into my house and I have a family. Thank you, God, for the food that we eat, where in some places they don't get that privilege. Thank you, God, for all the wonderful things that you give us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says that we look through a glass dimly. You ever, you ever been outside on the daytime and tried to look through tinted glass? That's how it is that we view everything concerning God. We are like on a bright sunny day, we are stand, it's like standing outside peering through tinted glass. We, we think we know everything. We think we have all the answers. We think we can call God into our own courtrooms. But Paul would say we look through a glass dimly. Paul would say, you can make out maybe outlines and shadows in there, but you haven't got the faintest idea of what really lies behind that glass. And here's a man that should know, because he went to the third heavens and says, I can't even explain it. I'm going to ask the worship team if they can come back and and tinker. But I don't want you to leave here this morning. If you need to do business with God, if if you're sitting here this morning going, you know what, some of the appetites and some of the desires in my life are unbalanced. If you need prayer this morning, then we want to pray with you. We have the leadership team here. But as we close, I'll pray. Could everybody please stand as I pray? Father, we stand in your presence, fully aware of the fact that we didn't even deserve Jesus. Jesus, while you were still our enemies, while we were still your enemy, while we were running a thousand miles away from you, Jesus, you stepped into our world. You came to realign all of our appetites. You came to make room in our hearts that we would desire God. I pray this morning that every one of us And I put my hand up that you would help me make room in my heart to desire God more fully each and every day. May I desire you more and may I desire everything else less. Thank you for everything that I have right now. 
Thank you for the wonderful people that make up this family here. Thank you for the joy of enjoying each other's company every Sunday. Thank you that every Sunday we walk in this building that you're already here waiting for us. Father, I pray that every person here this morning would feel you tapping on their heart. Knocking at the door of their lives for those who would open the door. Me and my Father, we will come in and we will sup. We will fellowship with you. In your wonderful name, Father, I pray that you would continue to awaken desire. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.